Every Bible expositor and every commentary that I've ever read in expounding this passage said that Jesus taught, that Jesus believed, and he led the disciples to believe that someday, at a point in history, there would be an end of an age, an end of an era, in which he would return to earth again. And this has been the hope of the church down through the centuries. Life matters, and the issues in life matter because they affect how we live our lives. In this podcast, Pastor Walt McFadden thinks out loud about truth and discerns how it is being applied to everyday life. Thinking Out Loud podcast is a production of City View Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Pastor Walt, I have been excited about our topic today because we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a controversial issue, believe it or not. I mean, there's all kinds of views on it. I guess the one foundation that all Christians believe is that Jesus Christ is coming back. But the question, the big question is when. And so today we're going to talk about a view that you personally hold that you think to your best ability think is when it's going to happen. I didn't always have this view. I sort of stumbled across it, but I was raised in a Pentecostal church. And of course, most Pentecostal churches teach pre-tribulation. And then after time, I saw some things in scripture and read some things. And I thought a mid-tribulation rapture made sense. So I was in the, that camp for, I just suppose, 10, 15 years. And then I did a sermon series on the book of Daniel. And it was actually the book of Daniel that convinced me of the post-tribulation view. So I've held all three views. And that kind of tells us something, that there is room for disagreement on this subject. Okay, so we're going to talk about post-millennial view, but there are three others, right? There's the amillennial, and if you want to explain that, that's fine. There is the premillennialist or premillennial point of view, the mid-tribulationists, as well as now we'll talk about the post. But what, what just briefly do some of those others really believe? Well, we start with the amillennial, which doesn't believe in a literal thousand-year reign of of Christ, then, and one thing we should remember is that for you and I, Larry, growing up, this was heard all the time. We always heard in church, Jesus is coming. That was the main issue, the main thought. And Correct. that bothers me more about the church than whether a person chooses a pre, mid, or post-trib view. The church doesn't talk about the return of Jesus. We don't tell people to be prepared at any moment. And Jesus talked about it all the time. So why do you think, uh, Walt, that things have changed so much in the last 20, 30 years that we don't talk about it? A couple of different reasons. Number one, we have people telling us that we should have our best life now. And (laughs) we don't get our best life now. This life is nothing compared to what we're going to get when we get to heaven. And for some Maybe they experience heaven on earth. They have a lot of money. We have the greatest health care in the world. We have a pretty good life in the United States. And then the other reason, I think, is because the church is embarrassed about it. And there have been some embarrassing things that have happened in church history. Was it 1989, the 89 reasons, or 87, the 87 reasons why Jesus will return? And 88 reasons. Came out of church one day, and every 
car in the church parking lot had a little brochure on it, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988, and of course he didn't. And there have been a lot of times like that throughout church history. The book of Revelation can tend to be very confusing because people make it confusing. So just a a little background. I've done a series on the book of Daniel, and I did a year-long series on the book of Revelation. And what I found in my study on the book of Revelation is it's not as hard to understand as we think it is. One of the things to keep in mind that is so often missed about the book of Revelation is that it is a replay of the Exodus. So you see the plagues that come upon mankind. Just this, and some of those, most of those plagues are exactly as the Egyptians experienced the wrath of God being poured out upon them as the children of Israel were brought out safely, and we're going to be brought out safely out of the tribulation. I do believe there is going to be a literal seven-year tribulation, and I do believe in the middle of that, the temple will have been rebuilt, that the Antichrist will enter in, that he will commit an abomination that causes desolation, he will defy his treaty with the nation of Israel, and that is one point in the future when the Jews once again become the centerpiece of God's plan. I want to make one comment about the replay of the Exodus in the book of Revelation, only from the standpoint that you and I both have encountered Christians who say, you know, we don't understand the God of the Old Testament. I'm sure glad Jesus came and changed it all, that God changed his ideas about judgment and grace, and so now he's all love. But the problem with that is, is the book of Revelation is a judgment book, just like some of the Old Testament stories were on judgment as well, indicating that God never, ever changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's get to our topic today, which is post. What is it about post-tribulationism that you really, really like? Well, one of the verses that I heard quite a bit growing up was, and the older generation in my church, they knew this teaching, pre-tribulation teaching inside, outside, backward, forward. They had been given a healthy dose of end times teaching. And one of the verses came from the book of Thessalonians, and it said that we are not appointed to suffer wrath. And I look at the context of that, and it was First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. What was happening in the church is the Thessalonians were told by someone that Jesus had already returned. And you can imagine the panic in the church. What are we going to do? We missed the return of Jesus. And so all Paul says to them, it's not, Jesus is not returned. This is false teaching. Of course, he battled all kinds of false teaching. People would come into the church after he left and tell them, you haven't been given the full gospel. We're going to give you the full gospel. And so somebody came into the church in Thessalonica and caused a real panic. And so Paul says to them, we're not appointed to suffer wrath. In other words, Jesus would never leave or come again without taking you. So they're thinking, well, Jesus has already returned. Everybody's been taken off the earth. Now the wrath of God is going to come. We're going to suffer the wrath of God. So Paul says, we're not appointed for that, to suffer the wrath of God. The judgment of God is poured out on the earth. So he's dealing with a false teaching. So the idea that of the pre-tribulation was, well, you see all this wrath of God being poured out on the earth. If God said we're not appointed to suffer wrath, then the Christians must have been taken. 
it's really taking that verse out of context. That was one of the main verses. And so I went back and just did some exploration on that particular verse. And maybe some of the listeners have never heard that before, but it's one of the key verses for pre-tribulation. It is. It's the big one. We will not be subject to the wrath of God. You're absolutely correct. This theme of wrath, Christians are not appointed to wrath in any shape, form, or manner, okay? Okay, so what was the next step for you? Well, then I started to look at the Daniel chapter 9 discussion on the 70 weeks. I should also say I don't put myself in any particular theological camp not dispensationalism, and not covenantalism. A lot of times we have to look at the history of our particular denomination. Sort of like being a Democrat or a Republican. You accept this whole package, and then you begin to sort of modify your belief system and justify the actions of your political party instead of sort of a la carte, pick and choose. And so my theology has become a la carte. I talked before about being a charismatic, reformed, person. And that's very rare in the church, but I'm sort of a hodgepodge of theology. So do you ever get accused of being sort of a chameleon theologian? In other words, changing according to the times and trends of the church? Oh, I suppose I could. Definitely if I had stayed in my previous church, I'd be accused of that because they still, I'm assuming, hold to the pre-tribulation. But what bothered me was how adamant people were and how angry they would get. I can remember talking about my perspective and view on the end times. There's a really excellent teaching from Dawson McAllister. He did two teachings at his conferences, and one of them was Pack Your Bags, Jesus is Coming. And the other one is A Walk with Christ Through Eternity. And I was using his teaching, Pack Your Bags, Jesus is Coming, and one of the older gentlemen in the church came up to me after and really read me the riot act. And some of the dispensationalist teaching that he had been given, I had never heard before. And he said that whole story of Jesus later in the book of Matthew where he has the sheep and the goats. He says, don't you understand? These are the sheep nations and the goat nations, and the sheep nations are kind to the Christians, and the goat nations are hostile to the Christians. And I, I had never heard this before, but he was so upset with me. And, you know, I was kind of taken back by his teaching, and he came to me later, and he accused me of mocking him and making fun of him. I wasn't doing any of that. I guess he read my body language wrong. But I just thought, what kind of a Christian witness is this, that you are so dogmatic about this teaching that you can't see the general idea that every Christian needs to be prepared? And a lot of of the films that have come out and some of the books that have come out are just kind of silly. They use too much poetic license to think about what would happen during the end times. They get outside of what the scripture tells us. Jesus told us exactly what we need to know. I am coming again, and when I come again, it'll be a surprise. Well, and I think like a thief in the night, I think the scripture talks about as well. And I concur with you, Walt, in one thing, and that is, well, many things, but one thing in particular, that we do not know the exact day or hour of his return. In fact, Jesus said that, no man knows the hour 
or the day except his father. That's the other thing I don't understand. You've got to hold some of this stuff loosely in your hand, right? And in your mind and heart and say, I believe this is the best like you did in your research. You believe post-millennialism is probably more and makes more sense, but you really ultimately at the end of the day don't really know, correct? Or, or is that Absolutely. I, I do not know for sure. I'm more confident now than I was what I was growing up. You, as a kid, you're sitting in church as a five-year-old and you hear this guy, you don't hear anything this guy says, but the minute he says, Jesus could come through that roof right now and grab you, that certainly gets your attention. And you certainly don't want to be in a movie, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or doing even, anything else. Or, or in a dance. I remember that was the big thing. Don't be caught doing something Jesus would probably not take you because you're sinning or something. It was just so fearful. I think it probably ruined a lot of movies for people. <laughs> You're listening to Thinking Out Loud with Pastor Walt McFadden. By the way, the most incredible prophecy in the Old Testament, Daniel gets down to the exact month, depending on the calendar that you use and the specific event, but he basically says for the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the temple, when Jerusalem really gets going again, where it's going to be 69 weeks and then the Messiah is going to be cut off. And he just hits the nail right on the head. And he's probably talking about the command of Artaxerxes with Nehemiah. And that's recorded in the scripture. That's a whole other subject. But just to say, the critics of the Bible have never been able to dispel that prophecy that Daniel picks it down to the exact month when Jesus is going to be on the earth than when he's going to be crucified. But then it says there's going to be this extra week. And there are a lot of things that are going to happen in the middle of that week. And I do believe that that week, which is actually code for seven years, some significant things are going to happen in the middle of that. That's where people start to get the idea that there might be a mid-tribulation rapture. And that's where I thought, you can read a book. I know there's some books out there, and they'll give you all three views. But still, I don't have a specific 100%. Yes, this is exactly, I'm 100% positive. This is the way that it's going to go down. One of the things that I found in my research was the idea of a rapture is pretty new in Christianity. John Darby came up with the idea in about 1830. He began to refer to this idea of a rapture. And then Cyrus Schofield, who wrote the Schofield Bible, became very popular after World War I. And with the circulation of the Schofield Bible, more and more people began to buy into the idea of a rapture. So what was it before Darby and Schofield? What did the majority of those centuries of Christians believe? There would be one return of Jesus. Period. Yeah, nothing else mentioned in church history. So about 1,800 years of church history, none of the church fathers taught a rapture. There's one quote from one of the church fathers that's often taken out of context. The church fathers are not our authority, but they give us a pretty good idea of the theology of the early church. They just simply believe that Jesus is going to return. And then the idea of make, and I can see where people would get the idea that Jesus may return at the beginning, the middle, or the end of this seven-year period. But John Darby was really the one who began to propagate that idea. 
And then there's a verse that's very commonly used in pre-trib, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, and here's the key phrase, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. But the idea that many scholars believe Paul was talking about was when a victorious king would return to his city after winning a battle, the people would go out of the city and they would greet the king and they would escort him back into the city. And so what he's saying is we are going to, and maybe we'll literally be caught up in the air and we'll be in the clouds and and we'll meet Jesus. And Jesus, the picture is Jesus is returning as a triumphant king. And we come in with that king and we welcome him back. I don't think that verse is saying that Jesus is going to take us away and seven years later, he's going to return. One of the questions that I had that I asked a a dispensationalist, he came to our church when I was just fresh out of Bible college, and he spent a whole week talking about pre-tribulation rapture. And I said, where is the pre-tribulation in the book of Revelation? And he said, it occurs between chapter four and chapter five, and you see this great host that's all of a sudden and I said, I, I don't think that's referring to the raptured saints. There is no specific point in the Bible that says, and especially in the book of Revelation, this is the moment, this is the time when the saints are raptured off of the earth. And before we started the podcast, I know you said that one of your question is, what happens in the earth if the Holy Spirit and the church are gone? I don't think the Holy Spirit and the church are gone, but I know that the pre-tribulation camp would say the 144,000, they would be the ones to evangelize the earth. So, you know, you have, you're putting all these pieces of the puzzle together. And it's obvious to me when Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, that he didn't want us to know the day or the hour. He said that specifically. He said, if you knew when the thief is coming, you'd be prepared. So there was just this expectation that he built within us. Jesus is going to return. We have to be ready for it at any moment. And so much of what the church is teaching today is truly about being a better person here on earth and making sure that you have a nice retirement fund and you have a cushion for some emergency. And it's exciting to be around Christians who don't live that way, who Christians who aren't careless with their money or their future, but they're constantly living with the idea that I could leave this earth at any moment. I could I could die. There could be an accident. I could get cancer. But also, I'm living in expectation of the return of Jesus. And we've seen other abuses. You know, people quit their job and they say, well, Jesus is going to return in the next six months, so I don't need to work. And their bills go sky high. Those kinds of, of foolish responses to the expectation of the return of Jesus, some of the things that have given the talk about the return of Jesus a bad name, a bad reputation. Harold Camping, predictions so wrong that he once said reporters would be thinking, I'm ready to shoot myself or go on a booze trip. He was wrong in 1994 and again when he announced the end would come May 21st, 2011. I think Christians who try to set dates or try to be so dogmatic about their point of view really violate what you just said. They violate that Jesus said no man knows the hour or 
for the day. So therefore, it's confusion. He's allowed it. So there's all these views, and I think it's in retrospect, looking back on what Jesus said that we shouldn't do with the idea of his return, that we should predict, because no one knows the hour or the day. Knowing that we're not 100% sure on any of these views, what do you think we should be doing? Occupy until he comes. And then Jesus said that it's going to be like the time of Noah. People are going to be eating and drinking, and they're going to be married, and life is going to go on. Now, Jesus is giving us a warning there. Don't get too involved in the world. But we can also deduce from that the world is just kind of going to go on as normal. And then all of a sudden... Things are going to change quickly. The Father is going to give the word to the Son. It's time. We're going to put an end to this condition of the world, and you are going to go back and you're going to rule and reign. One of my favorite verses is Zechariah 14.4. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Jesus is going to return physically to the earth. There are some that have taught that Jesus has already returned or that Jesus is only going to symbolically return or Jesus is going to return in the spirit. Jesus is going to physically return. And verses like Zechariah 14.4 cause me to lean more toward the post-trib, the idea that Jesus comes back one time and he physically reveals himself. And it says at one point in the scripture that the people that crucified him, they're going to look at him and they're going to say, he really is the King of Kings. He really is the Lord of Lords. And so we occupy, and that's the thought of an en- we're in enemy territory, right? We're occupying until he comes. You live life fairly normal, but when you do it expecting the return of Jesus, it definitely can alter your lifestyle. Some would push back on the post-trib because of that whole verse we talked about earlier, that we would not be subject to the wrath of God. Yet, the three and a half years of that week, or those seven years, is going to be wrath. How do Christians endure that? I mean, how do you justify the wrath of God and us not experiencing it, yet the, the last three and a half years are really wrath? Well, again, that verse from Thessalonians, I think Paul is using the word wrath or the idea of wrath in a different context. Romans chapter 1 tells us we are under the wrath of God. The world is under the wrath of God right now. This is a cursed world. And so God has done some things with under his wrath. He has given people over, and so they can do what ought not to be done. So we are living in a cursed world And in some cases, the wrath of God is shown in different ways. He has given over, and this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We're living in a cursed world. It is experiencing the wrath of God, and all of creation is groaning for the return of Jesus. Okay, I want to go back as we conclude our time together as you're thinking out loud today, Pastor Walt. I want to go back to the idea of what do we do in the meantime? And the scripture tells us to watch and pray. So what are we supposed to be watching for or what do we watch for? And then how do we pray as in relationship to that? You remember that band from back in the 80s. Are you an 80s guy, Larry? I could be, yes. Uh That band, 38 Special, they had a song, Hold On Loosely, 
but don't let go. <laughs> I don't remember it, but it sounds good. So we hold on loosely to the things of the world, and we don't let go of the hope, the great hope of the Christian faith. And it is really easy in this materialistic society to hold on too tight to the things that we have. And we have to hear it from the pulpit. You know, my audience right now is is small, but I don't find very many pastors talking about the end times. And I've had pastors come to me and say, I was never taught anything about the return of Jesus in seminary. Can you teach me about the return of Jesus? So in some places you have to educate yourself, but maybe talk to your pastor and say, Pastor, I would like to hear about those things. I don't think they're weird. I don't think they're strange. Let me give one more book. J.A. Seiss, The Apocalypse, best book I've ever read on the book of Revelation. That's where I get a lot of my ideas. And he will make the book of Revelation very simple. It's the classic on the book of Revelation. Just thought I'd throw in that tip if you want to do a little more research and reading. The Bible says that this hope of his coming should cause us to watch. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. The Bible indicates that to us that know him, it should purify us. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. It should make us united as Christians and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. It should cause us to evangelize. Occupy till I come. Occupy with loving your neighbor. Occupy. Don't sit down and say, the Lord's coming. I'm just going to sit here and wait for his coming. No, that's sin against God. That's displeasing to God. Go back to your school. Go back to your home. Go back to your church. Go back to your social obligations. And work as you've never worked. Occupy till I come. We hope you enjoyed the podcast today. And please let us know your thoughts on our topic. We want to hear your feedback and your concerns as you think out loud. Please visit us at cvcmpls.org. That's cvcmpls.org. This podcast is listener-supported. Please consider how you can help by going to our website at cvcmpls.org.